0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is David, and I'm uh, part of the staff, part of the leadership here at Severn. And uh, today, uh, I actually get the chance to continue our series that we're calling How Faith Works. And in the series, we're going through the book of James, and uh, James is such a practical book. I really appreciate that about James, and that really what we've been looking at week after week is how a faith in Jesus Christ uh, works itself out In all the different circumstances and and situations that we find ourselves in in this life. And uh, today we get to uh, touch on a fun topic. Uh, We get to talk about how to handle conflict. Uh, So this is going to be a good one. Uh, So we're going to uh, be in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So I'll go ahead and read that for us here. Starting in verse 1. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. Adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously? But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands of sinners and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers. He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is God's word. So uh, a lot of stuff in there we're going to talk about today. Um, So our our outline today is pretty simple. Uh, We're going to look at uh, the heart of conflict we're gonna look at the seriousness of our situation, and then we're gonna look at the hope for peace. Uh, So the first thing we're gonna do here, our first main idea today, is just dig down and look at what the heart of conflict is. So that's our first idea, the heart of conflict. And uh, and if you heard the, the message last week, You would have heard Pastor Ryan kind of talking about a very similar uh, topic here. You see James actually building on his argument that he was kind of starting last week. Because when Pastor Ryan was talking about the two different types of wisdom, he was talking about earthly wisdom and wisdom that comes from above, uh, Ryan mentioned this idea of um, just the way that inside all of us there's this conflict. There's this conflict inside all of us that will uh, basically manifest itself as this hunger that leads us through life, where we just are hungry for more. You know, we want more affection, we want more satisfaction, more comfort, more pleasure. Whatever it is, we're led through life by this hunger. And what James is doing here in this passage is showing us how that internal conflict can spill out of us and will be the source of all of our external conflict. And there's a reason why James is taking so much time getting us to look inside ourselves. So uh, to illustrate this, I'll tell a story about my time at Nationwide Insurance. Um, Some of you guys know I used to work there at Nationwide Insurance for almost seven years, actually. Uh, I was a claims adjuster. Um, This is actually, neither service did anyone sing the jingle. Usually people sing the jingle when you tell them you worked at Nationwide. Um, But uh, there it is. (laughs) Uh, So... I worked at Nationwide for almost seven years, again, as a claims adjuster. My job was to investigate car accidents, which might not sound that cool to you, but it's less cool than it sounds, because I would just sit in a cubicle and be on the phone all day. I would take recorded statements from everyone involved in an accident. And uh, if you've ever been in an accident, you've talked to someone who did that job, and you probably hate me right now, because you're imagining them and how that went. Um, But anyway, so I I would do the whole investigation, and my job was to make a determination, to make a decision about who was at fault for the accident which is why no one wants to be a claims adjuster, because no one thinks they're at fault for the accident, and the majority of your job is telling them that they are. It's really a terrible job. But anyways, I remember one claim in particular, a very simple single-car accident, where our policyholder had hit a gas station. Um, But again, my job was not exciting. She did not hit the gas pumps, there was no Hollywood explosion, she actually just hit the convenience store part of it, kind of scraped along the side of it. Very simple claim, and I was just getting the details from her, asking her what had happened, and was there any damage to the building. Uh, whenever she asked me a question that really kind of gave me pause, um, kind of took, the, took all the words out of my mouth. So I, I was sitting there going through the details, and she asked me, she said, when, when and how are we going to get the gas station to pay for my car's damage? Yeah. <laughs> so you guys all laughed. I fortunately held in the laugh that I felt boiling up inside of me. I composed myself, and I, I had to explain to her very very politely, very calmly. I said, ma'am, you hit a building. <coughs> If there's damage to the building, we have to pay for that out of your policy." And fortunately, she was, she was just like, oh, okay, and we moved on. So that didn't become one of the fights that can happen in that job. But the reason I tell that is it illustrates the way, how pr- it illustrates how prone we are as human beings to point the finger outside of us when we're looking for the source of our problems. This lady had hit a building and defaulted to the idea that the building was at fault. The gas station was not on wheels, in case you're wondering. We you want more details. It was a building. But the same is for us. James is saying when you're in conflict in your life, when you encounter conflict in your life, don't look outside of you for the source of that. You can't blame it on annoying people or a bad back or lack of sleep. He's saying the source is in you. He's saying it's your cravings, your passions, your desires that are the issue. And that's why he says here in verse... uh, Anyway, he, says, he says in verse 3, you desire and you do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. In other words, we want more than we have. So it's going back to that hunger. You know, we want more love, we want more satisfaction, we want more comfort, we want more recognition or appreciation. And those desires in themselves aren't bad. James doesn't say stop desiring, but what he shows us is that when we put those desires too high up in our life when we make them ultimate and we're trying to satisfy them by our own means, then we will come to a point where we are doing anything to anyone to get them. We will war against each other, we'll fight against each other, it'll lead to conflict. And he even says, you'll murder. Now, the commentators I read um, all agreed that he's probably not referring to actual murders that were happening in the early church, but that he's referencing the words of Jesus that says, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, if you hate your brother, it's the same as murdering him in God's eyes. So really what we see here is that at the heart of conflict is this idea that my pleasure, my agenda, my interests are more important than you. So that's fun. And then James actually takes us a little bit deeper. He kinda, we're gonna dig deeper into the heart of the issue here because he, he actually kind of peels back uh, another layer and shows us the, the cause beneath the cause. He kind of shows us where these desires and where these attitudes in us come from. And that source is pride. Yeah, that's why James gets into so much detail about the proud and the humble later in this passage. But if you just think about it, consider for a moment, you can kind of see how pride is at the source of that way of thinking. Because pride would say, I know exactly what I need. And pride would say, I know exactly how to get that. And if someone were to get in my way for that, you know, it's on them. If they come into conflict with my, my desires and what I know I need and, when I, and how I know how to get it, that's on them. So that's what leads to conflict. So I actually um, <clears throat> was reading in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has a chapter on pride, and the whole chapter is great. I'd recommend reading that if you get a chance. But he has a quote here that actually illustrates this idea. He's talking about uh, just how pride is inherently competitive and will lead to conflict in our lives, and he says this. He says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of of being above the rest." So what James has shown us here at the beginning of this passage is that at the heart of conflict is our own prideful unsatisfied hearts, full of desires that will never satisfy no matter what extremes that we go to if we're trying to do it by our own means. And uh, so far, this might kind of seem like pie in the sky, but James is always faithful to kind of bring things down to our daily lives and give us examples of what this looks like. And in verses 11 and 12, there were the two verses that might have sounded a little bit out of place to you, where he just says, hey, don't criticize one another. And what he's doing when, he, when he's bringing that up, he's actually giving, giving us an illustration or a diagnostic tool of how we can see this own, our own pride and our own emptiness on display by talking about a type of conflict that we're all familiar with, verbal conflict. You know, using your words to tear other people down. And the word criticize um, probably isn't the best word to use there because there can be such a thing as constructive criticism. The actual word, um, it's translated in other versions as speaking evil against. And the Greek word means to speak, like to talk someone down, to tear them down with your words, and to to do that behind their back a lot of times. So the idea of like slander or backbiting, that's what James is getting at here. And what he's saying is when we do that, when we use our words to tear other people down, we're just revealing our own prideful and empty hearts. We're revealing our own emptiness, our own pride. And the way that that plays out is, again, obviously, there's, there's, there's still room for, oppor- for the opportunity to use words to build people up. There's ways for the opportunity to actually, like, encourage someone with hard words. That's what James is doing here. So I'm not saying you can't do that. But the way this plays out is when we use our words to tear someone down, you can look at yourself and say, oh, that's, that's me being prideful. And James says that's us putting ourselves in the place of judge, putting ourselves in God's place pretty prideful, and then it reveals our emptiness or our, our desire that's unmet of wanting to feel superior or wanting to feel good about ourselves, so we have to tear someone else down to, make our, to lift ourselves up. So he's saying, hey, this is the diagnostic tool you can use, is how do you use your words? Which again, that kind of is James building on the teaching from two weeks ago. But I think from this idea of where the heart of conflict is, we actually get a really useful tool, a really useful tool that we can use any time we come into conflict, which I like whenever we have like a practical takeaway. Um, and, you know, obviously with what James is telling us, this is something you can, you can do next time you're in a conflict, is to look at yourself first. So I don't know if you've heard the phrase, check yourself before you wreck yourself. It originated in the Bible, that's where it came from. <laughs> it's n- Ice cube can't claim that, it came from here. <clears throat> but obviously, logically, if, if the issue is inside us, then when you're in a conflict, look there first. Look at yourself first. And I want to be very careful. I mentioned this at the last service as well. I, I don't want this to come across as you hearing me saying that every conflict you're a part of is 100% your fault or that you're always to blame, you're always the instigator for conflict in your life and you brought this on yourself because I don't want you to feel like you need to apologize whenever maybe you need to forgive because there's some, there's some gross injustice in the world. And there's, there's times when we are the victims of someone else's evil desires, someone else's selfishness and emptiness being played out in their life. But what's important to know is that even when we're the recipients of someone else's mistreatment, we can still respond out of a place of pride and emptiness. Because if you think about it, if someone mistreats you and you think, how dare they disrespect me like that? That's unforgivable. And then we start going down the line of, well, I need to get back at them. I need to get revenge. I know I need revenge. I know I need justice, and I'm going to get it myself. That's the same thing. We're just going to perpetuate conflict in our lives if that's how we respond when other people wrong us. So we can even respond to to being mistreated in this way. And really what we can do is trace our emotions back. So this is like basically the, the tool you can take home is trace your emotions back next time you're in a conflict. Just, you know, emotions are terrible compasses. You can't really follow them through life. That's a terrible idea. Disney is wrong. Don't follow your heart. But you can use your emotions as a means by which you can figure out what's going on inside your heart. So next time you feel angry, next time you feel slighted, or you feel, you know, like someone offended you or treated you wrong. Trace that emotion back to see what the desire is, the unmet desire in your heart is. And that's when you can begin to get at the heart of the issue here. But um, the the truth is, if there's pride in our heart, we're going to need help. We're going to need help seeing ourselves clearly, because um, with pride, we could just look at ourselves and say, check, I did that. I looked at myself, and I was right. You know, I can continue behaving the way I'm behaving. I checked myself. That's what David said to do. But um, what this means is we need a, we need a mirror. We need something that will help us see ourselves clear. We need a, something that will actually like, s- reveal the truth about us. And what that mirror is, James actually told us back in James 1, it's this. It's God's word. This is how we see ourselves clearly. And when we use this to see ourselves clearly, we'll actually see where, where James goes next, which is our second main idea today, which is number two, we'll see the seriousness of our situation. So I'm going to read James 4. Uh, Verses 4 and 5 again. These are the really really fun verses. Adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason, the scripture says, that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously? So in case we're tempted uh, to minimize the issue of pride or to minimize the conflict in our life, in verse 4, James just yells the word adulteresses at us, which, like, I, I couldn't imagine doing that on Sunday morning, so I'm not going to demonstrate that for you, but there's but an exclamation point in the Bible. He yells adulteresses at, at, at these people he's writing to and at us. And he's not accusing the, uh, the women of the early church of infidelity. That's not what he's doing here. Uh, James is actually picking up on a theme that's all through the Bible, which is that God does not just love his people like a shepherd loves his sheep. And God does not just love his people like a father loves his children. God loves his people like a husband loves his wife. And all through the Old Testament, you actually see instances where Israel, God's people, are accused of adultery, and it's whenever they are chasing after and worshiping other gods. Whenever they've set up false gods instead of the real God, and they start chasing after these idols, is when they're accused of that. And that's what James is doing here. But he didn't reference any idols. He didn't reference like a golden image. So what's he getting at? What James is getting at is that when you and I treat other people as less important than our agenda, our interests, our desires. Whenever we do that and start using them as a means to some other end, then we might not have set up a golden idol on our countertop, but we have set up a false god and are worshipping a false god just as much as when the children of Israel set up a golden calf. And in verse 3, it kind of helps us see this, because when James says, right before he says adulteresses, James said, you ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you can spend it on your own evil desires. So what he's showing us here is that we can even pray to the one true God, but still be trying to use him as a means to some other end. And whatever that end is, that's our true God. That's, what we're, that's our true thing that we're worshiping and chasing after with our lives. And obviously this is something that's very important for us to recognize because we don't live in a culture that's setting up golden images on our countertops. We, we don't do that, but We very much spend our lives chasing after all sorts of things and setting up false gods like things like comfort, and romantic love, and pleasure, and acceptance, and validation. We'll set all those things up like little idols in our lives. And the one thing that all those things have in common, all those gods have in common, is that they will never satisfy you if you get them, and they will never forgive you if you fail them. And the reason that this is such a big issue the reason that this is such an issue that James is getting at here, he's saying when you set up these idols, it's such a big issue because you're not just engaging in conflict with other people whenever you do this. You're you're being openly hostile towards God. And you're making an enemy of the one true God, the one who actually can satisfy you, who actually can forgive you. And James is making a connection here between our, our horizontal relationships with other people and our vertical relationship with God. And this is something that, that Jesus did as well in Matthew 5. <coughs> Uh, Jesus, in the same passage where he tells us that hating, uh, hating someone else is the same as murdering them in God's eyes, in that same passage, Jesus says, if you are about to offer your sacrifice to God and then you remember that your brother has something against you, then leave your sacrifice. Don't do that right then. Leave it there. Go make things right with your brother. Reconcile that relationship first, then come back. Then offer your sacrifice to God. That's how seriously God takes our conflict with one another because you can't be cool with God while you're using other people to be a a means to your own end that you're chasing after. Because when you do that, you're worshiping a different God. When you do that, you've actually made yourself an enemy of God. We make ourselves an enemy of God when we do that. And that's a sobering thought. Like this is heavy stuff that James is hitting us with here in James 4. It's not a laughing matter, which is actually exactly why James says in verse 9, he says, be miserable and mourn and weep your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Now, to be clear, James is not saying that Christianity is some stoic, stoic kind of life where the more miserable you are, you know, the more holy you are. He's not saying that Christianity is absent of joy. The Christian life is a life full of joy. But James is saying that in order to actually achieve true joy, you have to recognize the seriousness of your sin. You have to see your sin correctly. And if we are taking it lightly or if we're laughing about it, We don't see it correctly. James is saying that there is a time for us to be miserable about our sin. And again, this isn't a call to have a miserable life. It's a call to godly sorrow, which the Bible says is a type of sorrow that doesn't crush you or destroy you, but actually leads you to repentance. So this godly sorrow is actually a prerequisite for reconciliation. It's a prerequisite for the life of joy and the life of peace that we want, that all of us want to be able to be right with God and be right with other people, we need to first see the seriousness of our situation. So, you know, maybe now you're thinking, okay, good, now we know the problem, let's fix it. And this might sound weird, but we actually can't fix it. We actually can't even look at ourselves and face ourselves the way that we need to to be able to see this reality on our own. Unless something changes, we don't even have, the human heart doesn't have the capacity to handle that, to actually take that deep look in our own heart. And if you don't, If you don't believe me, just look at Genesis, where um, Adam and Eve, uh, sin just entered the world in Genesis 3. And uh, Adam and Eve's first move is to hide from God. And they sow fig leaves to hide from each other. And then when they have a chance to come clean, when God asks them what happened, they hide from themselves. Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. So, really, the human heart, unless something changes, the human heart doesn't have the capacity to actually face this truth, to face the reality of how bad our situation actually is. And that makes it possible for us to hear, once we recognize this issue, it makes it possible for us to hear the good news, which is what James goes to next. So don't worry, there is good news today. I'm not just going to stand here all day and talk about all the bad stuff in James. There is good news. Um, And this actually brings us to the last idea we're going to look at. It's uh, number three, it's the hope for peace. I'm going to read James 4 verses 6 through 10. It says, After calling us adulteresses and making us aware of how serious the situation is, he says, But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So I'm convinced that James spends so much time on the bad news, so much time with the hard words that he's sharing um, at the beginning of this passage, uh, because he recognizes how deep of an issue pride is in the human heart. And you can't just fix it by saying, stop being prideful, be humble. That doesn't work. If you try that, it won't work. If you tell someone who's proud to stop being prideful, it's not going to work. So instead... Uh, James is much more helpful than that. He's a much better friend than that. Instead, what he does is he shows us that we have absolutely no reason for pride. And instead of telling us to be humble, he shares a very humbling truth with us. The humbling truth, again, that makes it possible to hear the words and to, and to really appreciate the words that say, but he gives greater grace. Because in any conflict that you and I find ourselves in, whether it's an argument with a spouse or, you know, warring nations, we always have the same natural tendency. We just want to win. You know, we want to defeat the enemy. Whoever we view as the enemy, we want to defeat him or destroy him. And James says, hey, we do that. Whenever we get into conflict with each other, we will destroy each other. And we'll actually make an enemy of God in the process. But then we see how God deals with us, who James would say are God's enemies. We see how God deals with his enemies and that he extends grace and when you think about how he did it, God extended grace to us, to his, to his enemies, by not destroying his enemies, but allowing his enemies to destroy him for the sake of his enemies. In Romans chapter 5, we actually see this greater grace uh, expounded on in more detail. In Romans, in Romans 5, uh, the apostle Paul wrote a letter to Rome, and that's, that's what Romans is. In Romans chapter 5, Paul's talking about how while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies with God, is when God displayed his love for us. And that Christ died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, so that there could be reconciliation, so that there could be healing and peace and an end to this conflict. And Jesus, again, he did this by allowing his enemies to destroy him and for praying for their forgiveness in the process. And this is a, this is a level of grace that we really just don't have words for. We can't really like, articulate really how great this grace is. But the more that we see that the way that God dealt with us in a conflict that was 100% our fault, the more that we'll actually be able to begin to learn how to handle conflict with each other. And I do want to close by talking about two ways that this grace and an identity f- shaped and formed by this grace actually allows us to handle conflict. Because first, what this, if you have an identity that's, that's founded on grace, it's founded on what Jesus has done, on, on his unmerited favor of you, it's not founded on what you've done. Your whole identity is shaped by that. First, you're going to have the ability to actually look at the heart of the issue. You're going to be able to look at yourself. You're going to be able to actually trace back how bad you really are and trace how deep pride actually runs in your heart. You can't even preach without having to deal with that. You know, I mean, you have to stand up here and trace back your own pride, trace back your motives. So just to show how deep it goes in us, we, it takes a lot of security to be able to do that. For us to be able to really face how bad we actually are, it takes a very secure identity. But when your identity is shaped by what Jesus has done, not what you've done, what it means is that you can look as deep in your heart as you need to to see how bad things really are. No matter what you see, you will know that you are still fully loved and fully accepted and fully pursued and valued by God so much that he would die for you. No matter what you see there, because God already saw it all before he decided to die for you, and he still chose to. So that's the first thing. We're able to actually do the hard work of looking in our hearts and I don't know if you noticed but <clears throat> James mentions that grace before he goes into that list of you know submit to God resist the devil purify your heart you know pur- purify your hands cleanse cleanse your hearts all of that is after the grace even the ability to actually take our situation seriously and mourn and weep all of that comes after understanding God's grace because we can't do it without understanding God's grace if you have an identity that's built on being a good person you can't admit how bad you are it would crush you It's literally impossible. You can't admit how bad you really are if your whole identity is shaped by that. And the same is true for any other identity we can try to set up. It's not as secure as one that's founded in grace. So that's the first way that that grace can really help us as we face conflict. It'll help us get to the heart of the issue. And secondly, the more we understand this grace, we'll be able to put the interests of others ahead of our own because we'll see that that's exactly what Jesus did for us whenever he laid down his life for our interests and that isn't just an example for us i think it's easy to stop there and say well jesus did it so i should do it it's not just the example for us it's also the resource pool from which we're able to then do the same for others what i mean is that when you recognize it in jesus you have everything you're so desperate for you have acceptance you have love you have honor you have glory you have all of that because you have jesus then you're able to actually give that to others you don't have to fight people for those things anymore there's no more scarcity mindset in us where we have to be in conflict over these things we already have it all so then from this infinite pool of resources jesus gave us we can be agents of grace and agents of peace in the world around us we can begin to put other people first instead of trying to fight and get our own and i'm actually going to um, call up the worship team and you'll probably get out of here early today that always happens when i preach so congratulations <clears throat> but uh, i wanted to end by reading something uh, that i once read about uh, farmers in the midwest which You might be wondering, what does that have to do with anything? Hopefully, I'll show you. So, farmers in the Midwest, (coughs) this is what I read in the book, it says, farmers in the Midwest would prepare for blizzards by tying a rope from the back door of their house out to the barn as a guide to ensure that they could return home safely. These blizzards would come quickly and fiercely and were highly dangerous. When their full force was blowing, a farmer could not see the end of his or her hand. Many froze to death in those blizzards disoriented by their inability to see. They wandered in circles, lost sometimes in their own backyards. If they lost the grip of the rope, it became impossible for them to find their way home. Some froze within feet of their own front door, never realizing how close they were to safety. And to this day, in parts of Canada and the Great Plains, meteorologists counsel people that to avoid getting lost in the blinding snow when they venture outside, they should tie one end of a long rope to their house and grasp the other end firmly. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, in this passage we just read today, <clears throat> it's clear, by the way, that James is talking about pride and conflict in our lives, that he knows that those are as much of a danger to our souls and to our community as a blizzard is to our, uh, to our bodies, to our life. And just like these blizzards, how they would come out of nowhere, and they were dangerous, and they could blind you, and they could ruin you, that's exactly the same way that conflict is in our lives. It can come out of nowhere. It can make it hard for you to see how, any way through it. And it can ruin your life. And what James gave us today, he didn't give us, in this passage, he didn't give us, you know, three easy steps to handle conflict. He didn't give us techniques for walking through a blizzard. What he gave us was a rope. He, sh- he gave us the rope of God's grace. He showed us that, hey, this pride in you, you have to kill that, so you know you can't handle that blizzard on your own. You've got to take something with you. You've got to take something with you to help you get back home safe. And then he showed us the seriousness of the situation, showing us that you can't put that rope down when you're out there. You've got to hold on to it tight. And then he showed us that that rope is the great grace that God has extended to us through Jesus. And really, the, the whole thing that he's telling us here is that the, the more that you grasp this grace, the more that you grasp, grasp this grace that God has extended to you, the more it will humble your prideful heart and the more it will satisfy your hungry heart. And when you have a heart like that, that's when you can handle conflict. Let me pray for us today. <clears throat> Father, we are so grateful for the way you have dealt with us. That you have every right, every right to destroy us, to judge us, but God, you extended grace. Grace that we could never earn, never deserve. By its very definition, we can't earn it or deserve it. And God, we, uh, we need your help to be a people who really grasp your grace, who really let it transform us from the inside out and let it play out in our everyday lives. And God, that's my, my request today is just that you would make us a people like that. Make us a community who understands what you've done for us and are from that able to handle conflict, able to, to live in peace with other people and with those around us and to be different from the conflict that's always going to be in our lives, to handle that differently because we've seen how you've dealt with us. God, please move deeply in us, and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.